Uh, so before we start, I just uh, today I came from uh, right before I came here. Um, I'm wearing blue because uh, it, it, not because of the Tar Heels. <laughs> I wish I wish it was because of the Tar Heels. That'd be great. Um, a couple in my church, they their two month old died in his sleep. And they're really, really good friends of mine. So they had a memorial service today, and uh, Jill, the mom, Jill and John Michael are their names. And they asked everybody that came to wear blue in honor of him. And his name was Rourke. He was two months old. They went to check on him, and he was gone. So it's, it's a really terrible thing. Like, people try to say, well, God had a purpose, and this and that. But I don't think... That's always the case. I think in Scripture, what we see is evil happens, and God brings good out of it. Um, so please pray for my friends there right now as the service probably just got out. But they're a young couple. They ha he had an older sister. She's a few years old, I think, might four or five. Um, maybe a little older. I can't remember exactly. Time flies. All my friends are having kids, and they're getting older, and I can't keep track. But uh, it's... I mean, any parent in here, that's the worst nightmare. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than that that you can go through as a parent. And there's just no explanation for it. It's not, you can't even point to someone to blame for it other than God. And the psalmists do. They point to God and they, they aren't afraid to cry out to Him and to blame Him and to yell at Him and scream at Him because they know He's big enough to handle it. And so whenever we experience such pain and such hurt, it's something that, as an Old Testament teacher primarily, I see a lot of leeway in the Bible that God gives His people to scream out at Him and cry out at Him. And I see far less leeway that Christians give themselves to do the same thing. And so I think that's something that Scripture should challenge us in, is to be able to express our raw pain to God and know that He's not angry at us for doing so. That He expects it, that He welcomes it, and that that's what a relationship is all about. We, we don't have the vision, we don't have the vantage point to see the good that He's going to bring about it, but He knows that. And so He doesn't mind His children coming at Him and coming to Him and crying and screaming and yelling and, and being angry with Him. He would much rather that than a pious ignoring of Him altogether. So I, I just wanted to specifically, it's a shorter chapter today, so... I wanted to take some time up front just to let you guys know about two really good friends of mine that, that experienced probably the worst pain that you can imagine. So please pray. Their names are uh, Jill and John Michael, and they're, I've known them for over 10 years. Really, really solid, solid couple. So pray that they grieve well, that they're able to honor his memory rather than be pained by it, uh, and that somehow God brings something redemptive out of this. This is Easter week. God is in the business of bringing about goodness out of seemingly overwhelming evil, right? Any disciple standing at the foot of the cross had no clue that God could do anything good from it. And yet, in the end, that was actually the most good that the world has ever been done, was that act that happened on Friday, which is why we call it Good Friday, even though it was absolutely horrible. So keep that in mind this week in particular, and, and whenever you experience or you have friends that are experiencing pain and suffering and loss and death, all of those things, remember, it's not just a part of life. It's always an enemy. 
It's death, death is always an enemy. It's never a part of life to just be accepted with a serene smile. Um, but it's a beaten enemy, and one day it'll be done away with completely. So let's get to Numbers chapter 12. Israel is set out. They're headed to the promised land. They're on their journey, and then right at the beginning of their journey, there's hints of rebellion starting. And this last week we saw the rabble, the riffraff, the, the outliers who had come along with Israel, some of them, and, and Israelites themselves, had been lured into this crying out against God, this, this um, vocal rebellion at least. And so there was, God brought the fire. I mean, he reminded them, I am the God who dwells in unapproachable holiness. I am the God who is a blast furnace uh, rather than a kindly grandpa. Don't ever forget that, Israel. And you are my covenant vassal. You are my covenant servant. You have entered willingly, willingly entered into my service. Remember back in Exodus, those of you that were here, three times Israel said, everything that the Lord says we will do. Three times. So they have agreed, and now they're already murmuring and, and grumbling against the contract that they signed. So God sent some judgment, but He also sent Moses what he needed. Moses was feeling beaten down. He was feeling like, I can't handle all this. I can't bear all these people alone. So God gave His Spirit, part of the Spirit that He had given to Moses, to the elders so that they could aid Him spiritually. Now, it's almost like the flip side of the coin. Now, we're going to experience uh, a part of the narrative where some people who have already had that sense of leadership think, well, why do we really even need Moses? What's going on there? But it's going to start like big, deep arguments always start with a superficial objection, a surface objection, uh, a racist objection, actually. So chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now this Miriam and Aaron began to talk against. The verb, you don't see this in English because English doesn't have this function, but the verb is a feminine singular verb. This is Miriam began to talk against Moses and Aaron with her. Like Aaron's a secondary actor in this. It's not the both of them come forward with this complaint. The verb is a feminine singular verb. So some people get troubled later when Miriam's going to get punished and Aaron's not. And they say, well, that's not fair. This is patriarchal, blah, 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 blah. Well, no, no, no. The punishment is going to fit the complaint. And it's going to fit the one who brought the complaint. And Aaron is, is wrapped up in it, but not the primary actor this time. He's already had his moment of rebellion, if you remember the golden calf incident. Now, this is, Mir this is mostly on Miriam. And we know that by the verbiage, which is very clear in Hebrew. I mean, any first semester student of Hebrew could tell you this. They began to talk against him because he had a Cushite wife. Now, who's Moses' wife? Zipporah. Yeah, and who is Zipporah the daughter of? Yes, Jethro. And Jethro is a priest of, anybody remember? Midian. Yeah, see it's important to keep these things going as you read along. They'll come back and I'm going to give you quizzes. 
Uh, no, it's, it's important to realize this because this is how we fit the narratives together. They weren't written in isolation. Zipporah is from Midian. They talked against Moses here because he had married a Cushite wife. Now, Cush is the land of Ethiopia or somewhere around that region. So commentators for centuries, going all the way back to the ancient Jews, have been puzzled over this verse. Who is this wife? And there's been different answers. Some have said this is just another way of describing Zipporah. Later in Habakkuk, the prophet will talk about Midian, and he'll use a parallel term to describe it that the NIV translates as Cushan. It's chapter 3, verse 8, I think. 3-7. But it's... Uh, you knew it off the top of your head, right? But it's, uh, Kushan, is, it's the same word that's translated here as Kushite. So there's one view says, no, Zipporah is a Kushite in the sense that she's a Midianite, and that was just another word for Midianites. And that could be true. That could be true. It could just be a way of describing Midianites. The other interpretation says, no, Moses took a second wife. Uh, Zipporah died at some point. We aren't told when. We aren't given any details about her. But after she died, Moses took a second wife. And that's what their complaint is about right here. And the second wife was Ethiopian. was part of that mixed multitude, that rabble that came up out of Egypt. And that's who he took as his wife. That goes back to the ancient rabbis as well. So that's a valid view. Totally valid. Could even be both. It could be that Zipporah is a Midianite, not a Cushite, but Cushite is a derogatory term because Cushite was describing those who were much darker. And in cultures around the world, there's always been antagonism between light skin and dark skin, one side or the other. And, and that's a universal human trait, it seems. So this could be, and I lean this way personally because of what God does to her in a minute. I lean the fact that she, whether it's, I think it's probably Zipporah. I don't think there's another unnamed wife. But Zipporah is, oh, a Cushite. In the same way that Obama was a Muslim, right? Like not, not literally saying that's what this person literally is, but oh, this is one of those type of people like with implications, like I, I lean the, that way that it's not a literal, she's literally from Cush, although she could have been. We don't know where she, if maybe she, her mother was from Cush, married Jethro in Midian, who knows? We don't know. The details aren't given unpacked fully. But the term Cushite in this narrative has a derogatory sense. Is it because they're foreign? Maybe, maybe not. There's not a prohibition against marrying outside of Israel. There's a prohibition against marrying outside of Israel and keeping that other faith. In other words, people were allowed to come into Israel and people were allowed to marry into Israel. But in doing so, you took upon the covenant. Well, Zipporah had already done that. Back in Exodus, when Moses and her were on their way back to Egypt after his calling, she circumcised their son. If you remember that incident where God showed up, Moses' son wasn't circumcised. So Zipporah had already entered into the covenant people as Moses' wife and having circumcised their son. So that's, it's probably not the case of that she's foreign as much as she's Cushite. She's of the darker folk. And we're good Hebrews. 
and we're of the more lighter-skinned variety. Commentators are split on it, but most of them see the punishment fitting that type of scenario best. We're going to see it, but that's just the excuse because look, they said they spoke against Moses because he had married a Cushite. Here's their complaint though. Has Yahweh, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? They asked, hasn't he also spoken through us? That's their complaint. They mask the complaint with a superficial objection, but there's really something flowing underneath it. And you all know if you've had any conflicts, this is usually what's going on. If you and your wife, you and your husband have a spat, it's usually not about the thing you're fighting about at that moment. It's usually this, this seething resentment that you've kept pushed down for a long time. And then finally, they do something completely unrelated and it brings up all those feelings that you've been trying to deny and that explodes out into the conflict. I mean, that happens all the time. We've all had relationships where that happens. And part of preventing that is diffusing the pressure. When things happen, letting them get worked through at the moment instead of just overlooking and letting the resentment build up. Because it's like a pressure gauge. The more you don't say something, the more you, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, you know if you've ever been told I'm fine, that means you're not fine. There's something incredibly frustrating and wrong up beneath the surface. If you do that, it explodes into a much bigger conflict later down the road. So it's cliche. This is not biblical wisdom. This is common wisdom. Nip it in the bud. That's not a biblical phrase, I don't think. Um, before it blooms into a full-blown toxic argument, take care of it. That's just good practice. I had a roommate, by the way, uh, one of my board members for Disciple Dojo. He and I lived together for 12 years, longer than most marriages in America. And we still didn't get any benefits, but go figure. Um, so we lived together for 12 years, and in the 12 years we lived together, we never had one argument. Not one argument, ever. One of the reasons, because he's like the nicest guy you'll ever meet in the world. And two is because I'm just so awesome. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. But no, the reason that we didn't is because whenever we were very intentional, whenever something little bothered, like, you know, the dishes were left in the sink or somebody's got a vacuum today or the grass is getting real tall, somebody needs to cut it, we would always just lightly like, hey, are you going to get on this or am I going to have to, you know, like just bring it up playfully, jokingly, and it would diffuse before anything ever even started. It was a way of intentionally keeping that resentment from bubbling that can very easily turn into something much bigger down the road. And it's, a really, it's, a, it's just a really healthy practice in general, having those type of relationships where you can say, hey, this may be a little weird right now, but I don't want it to get really weird later, so uh, let me just say this. And then you talk about whatever it is. So anyway, that's common wisdom. That's proverbial wisdom. Let's get back to Torah and the story. So they complain and then they ask, hadn't God spoken through us too? Now, verse 3 is parenthetical in your NIV. It says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Yeah, that seems to be a self-contradictory statement if Moses wrote this. So some people argue this is clear that Moses didn't write it. It was written after his death. Or this was added in as a parenthetical note. And that's perfectly plausible. That, that's the traditional interpretation. could very well be. But the word humble is the Hebrew word anan. And it's not the regular word for humble. 
It's not the word that you mean like meek, uh, self-deprecating, humble. It's not. It's translation as a couple of commentators. Pick up the commentaries. Again, don't take my word for it, but pick up the commentaries. Look, the translation that a lot of the commentators push for is something along the lines of miserable. Like humbled, not humble. Pressed down or afflicted, not just meek and mild. Because Moses has been attacked for two chapters now by the very people that he's brought out of Egypt as a leader, and now by the two people he was closer with than anybody in the world, his brother and his sister, who are just happen to be the chief prophetess and the chief high priest of Israel. So a number of commentators look at this and they say, it's not saying that Moses was just this super humble guy. It's saying at this point in the story, he's the most miserable man in the world. That's a very different read but it's also 100% fitting with the text. And I think it handles better the overall questions, but either, either reading works. It's, it's not a hill to die on. But at this point, he's miserable. And, and he doesn't, it's almost like he doesn't even know what to say in response to this. I mean, these are the people who watched the Exodus, remember? These are the people, Miriam was the one who sang the prophetic song of Miriam on the shore of the Red Sea after God destroyed the mightiest army in the history of the world up until this time. They should know better, but they've allowed this, whatever it is, whether it was the thing in the last chapter where these other 70 got some of the Spirit, and they're looking at it like, wait a minute, if they get some of the Spirit, then surely we're at even, even higher elevation because of who we are. As, after all, rule is hereditary in the ancient Near East, so as Moses' brother and sister, they should be calling the shots if Moses isn't, or at least in, in union with him. They should be his top key advisors and, and speak to the people about God, this and that. So, verse 4. Immediately, at once, right then, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. You know He means business when this happens. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. Whenever God shows up and stands somewhere, whether it's in a pillar of cloud or whether it's in a, a loud rushing wind or wh whatever, a whirlwind, so, something's about to go down. And it's not a happy feeling. This is like when the principal walks into your class and you've been goofing off. When the teacher gets onto you, that's one thing. When the principal shows up, oh, nightmares. Um, that... God showed up personally to, 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 to nip this in the bud. God's going to make sure that this does not... Because this is not just some rabble complaining about Moses. This is the high priest and the prophetess over Israel. These are the two offices, priest and prophet, that would govern Israel for the rest of its history. So God is establishing in no uncertain terms right now, hey, this thing I have with Moses, it's more important than you. And it outranks you. And you need to know this. Get back in your lane because I'm serious. And that's what God says. He says, the Lord came down. They stepped forward. He said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions and I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house or faithful over all of my household. 
With him, I speak face to face. Literally in Hebrew, I speak mouth to mouth is that literal word, what it says. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God's way of saying, how dare you? Your attack on Moses is an attack attack on me. God's showing up to vindicate. Now notice, Moses did not tell them your attack on God is an, your attack on me is an attack on God. That's what self-serving preachers who want to keep control and govern authoritatively will resort to. Moses does not plead his own case. And that's a very dangerous thing if you ever hear someone say, "Hey, you attacking me is like you attacking God." That's not our place to say. God will vindicate. Judgment belongs to me, says the Lord. So the sure sign, or at least a major red flag of anyone in authority, is when you hear them start to pull their rank and say, well, if you attack me, if you disobey me, you're disobeying God. That's how cults start. That's how people get people to leave their families, to sell all their possessions, to move into some commune, and have let the cult leader have communal sex with their wives and their daughters. I'm not making that up. That literally is how cults operate. Oh, I can't question that. I can't question the senior pastor's vision because that's questioning God. Well, maybe, but the senior pastor's not the one that's going to enforce that to you. God's going to defend His servants. And so that should cause fear and trembling among people who do decide, well, I can speak up against uh, whoever God's put over me. So, the anger of the Lord burned against them. Linking it back to the last chapter, by the way. That imagery of the anger burning. And He left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned to her and he saw that she had leprosy. Or the, It's not really what we call leprosy. It's, it's what we read about uh, last year in Leviticus. It's those skin diseases. What do the skin diseases do? They make you impure. You have to leave the camp. There's a ritual that has to be performed. They're like scaly. They're, they're, your skin is, could be like scabbing or flaking or... Uh, In this case, it says like snow. So some commentators have said it means white, like scaly white skin uh, condition. Others have said, no, that's not how snow is used in Hebrew. When they speak of snow, they speak of something that kind of like is impermanent, that that oozes, that runs, that melts, and that that's like like open sores and wounds and gaping. Uh, Whatever. I mean, either works. Could be both. The text just says like snow. So we can fill that in. But given her complaint a moment earlier, this is a beautiful example of an ironic punishment fitting the crime. It's almost as if God says, so, Moses' wife wasn't white enough for you, huh? I'll show you white. Oh, you don't like dark skin? Well, let me make sure your skin is the opposite of dark. It's such a great punishment that God gives. I mean, it's very much like it's just so fitting. And, oh, she's a Cushite? An outsider? Well, now you are an outsider. And you're out of the camp. So, it's, this, it, it's, a, it's one of my favorite narratives of God's judgment because it's so fitting and there's multiple layers to it. And God doesn't rebuke her for what she had said about Moses' wife. He rebukes her and Aaron for, th- for the deeper thing that they were really... Wor- so he addresses with his word the deeper thing, 
and then just how they had used the superficial thing to mask it, then the punishment he leaves them with addresses the superficial thing as a way of showing that, yeah, that was sinful too. But what he's addressing, the deeper sin, is their presumption and their rebellion. So it's very, uh, it's a dramatic moment. And Aaron, he said to Moses, verse 11, please, my Lord, now he's no longer my brother, fellow prophet, fellow priest. He's my Lord, Adonai. This is a term of, in, of, of reverence to Moses. Please, my Lord, don't hold against us the sin we've so foolishly committed. There's flat out confession. Not, hey, I'm sorry you took it that way, Moses. I didn't mean it that way. That's not confession. That's not even an apology. You ever know when people get busted for scandals and they make those apologies? That's one of my biggest pet peeves. When people call something that they did that was awful, sinful, when they say, I made a mistake. No, you didn't make a mistake. Making a mistake is forgetting a decimal point, not sleeping with someone's spouse. All right? You didn't make a mistake. You sinned. And just say, I sinned. People do it all the time, though. Oh, I'm sorry if anything I said offended you. No, 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 no. You should have stopped with I'm sorry because what you did was wrong. So, I'm sorry, full stop. And that's kind of what Aaron's response here is, is a good... Like you can see, there's humility in this. There's genuine repentance. The sin we have so foolishly committed. Like he's eating his words. He says, verse 12, so he's still begging to Moses all at once, don't let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. This is the image that gives us an idea of what's going on here. Literally, the Hebrew says, don't let her be like the dead who being born with their flesh half eaten away. In other words, like sometimes, in, especially before modern medicine, when, when infant mortality rates were so high, there would be a lot of stillborns. There would be a lot of uh, miscarriages and the child would not have been fully formed in the womb its flesh its bones its structure and when it comes out the amniotic fluid and everything that dries on it it's kind of like peeling off it's just it's a really gross but unfortunately common thing that would happen back then and so that's what he's looking at Miriam his sister and that's the image that he's seeing so that lets you know this is not like God gave her a little rash like she is disfigured by this and it's scary. And it's scary for Aaron. So he intercedes as a priest on her behalf, but he intercedes to Moses. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Just all he cried out. Not, okay, I guess I'll pray to God now that you're sorry. Not, oh, you've groveled sufficiently. Now I will. You know, there's none of that. There's a genuine concern. Moses cries out to God. So this is a very graceful response. When someone comes to you and flat out apologizes, it's so tempting to get in and I told you so before you then smooth things over. <laughs> and there's none of that. There's just crying out to God, please heal her. And the Lord replies to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back in. The phrase, if her father had spit in her face, that's, there's not an exact practice in Scripture that we know that's referring to. It's more of an ancient practice of spitting in someone's face was seen as an act of publicly disgracing them and saying, you are out. 
there's, there's mentions of it later, like that, that when a woman's treated a certain way and, and the husband does something, then she can spit in his face and is to like visibly do it in front of everybody. And it's a way of, it's just an, it's an act of dishonoring. And so what God's saying is, if her dad had dishonored, if a normal, if, if she had been dishonored by anybody else, then wouldn't she at least have to spend seven days outside the camp? That's what's going to happen now. So she's gonna, she is going to take this dishonorment, but she's not going to die from it. I'm gonna, it'll, she'll be healed in seven days. So she'll be healed, but there's consequences for her actions. There's forgiveness, but there's consequences. Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. So after this event now, this is establishing God going out of his way to establish the authority of his word through Moses. And, and it also foreshadows this rebellion that's starting, this murmuring that's, that's snowballing. And in the next chapter, it blows up. So where they go, they leave Hazaroth, which is probably somewhere, some say it's in somewhere in Sinai Peninsula, others say probably somewhere in northwest Saudi Arabia, I lean that way, but it doesn't matter. They journey up to the wilderness of Paran, which is like south of what today would be Israel. So like on the border, looking into from the south, the promised land. And that's where they're, that's where they're supposed to go all along. Right from Egypt up into the promised land, take the land. So that's still the plan. They've had a setback. Aaron and, Mo, uh, Aaron and Miriam had to be put in check. The people had to be put in check in the previous chapter. But the plan's still moving forward. God hasn't abandoned the covenant and he hasn't turned his back on them. But we'll see what happens next week. So have a great week. If you want to come, if you're interested in the class that we start, it starts a week from tonight. And 20 bucks, six-week class, exploring the Bible, all about it. You can come register right up here for it. Other than that, have a great week.